Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist and professor. It's just me today. I thought I would do a second episode on evolutionary psychology. Uh, in the first episode, I went on a massively long tangent and decided to just end the episode and, and start a new one. Uh, that had to do with research in evolutionary psychology. But before I go on, let me just uh, do a little disclaimer here. I'm not an expert in evolutionary psychology. I have decided to look into it uh, over the past, I don't know, five or six weeks, and have read a lot and written a lot and have discovered some things that I thought I would share with you guys. So just a little summary of evolutionary psychology. It's, it's a pretty complex field, but, but basically in a nutshell, this is how I see its main idea. Its main idea is that through evolution and through natural selection and sexual selection, we humans evolved particular psychological mechanisms that were beneficial to our survival and would therefore result in us being better able to have children and pass on the genetic determinants of those psychological mechanisms. So let's say 100,000 years ago on the African savanna, you have early humans and you have two men and uh, they're friends and Joe and Sam, we'll call them. And Joe is, he's pretty fearless. He doesn't really get afraid of things. And Sam tends to get afraid of things and tends to uh, run away. But not all the time. He's not constantly running. But he has a little bit of an, an anxiety issue. Well, let's say that Joe and Sam have never seen snakes before. And they've never heard of snakes and none of their relatives have ever talked about snakes. And they're walking on a trail and this poisonous snake, happens to be poisonous, comes out onto the trail and they both see it. Well, Sam, since he was born with a disposition for being afraid, immediately stops in his tracks and becomes afraid and has an urge to run, and, and he does, and he runs. Joe, on the other hand, doesn't recognize what it is. He's looking at it, and he's thinking, I have no idea what this thing is, and why is Sam running away? He's always running away. And Joe walks over to it and inspects it. The snake bites him, and Joe dies. So let's say that all this happened before Joe and Sam ever had children. Well, Sam later uh, finds someone that he likes to spend his time with, and they have sex and they have children. Well, the idea is, is that Sam will pass along the genetic determinants of that psychological mechanism that will produce fear in his offspring when they come upon something that they're unfamiliar with. Whereas Joe, since he had no children did not pass on the genetic determinants of the psychological mechanism that is fear-free. And that over time, as our species evolved, we ended up with the set of psychological mechanisms that we all possess today. Now, what are those psychological me mechanisms that are universal to humankind? Well, these are very difficult questions to answer, and I'll get into that later. But the short answer is, is it's unknown, even though a lot of evolutionary psychologists claim to know the answer to that question. All right, well, before I go into specific research, let me talk a little bit about how evolutionary psychologists evaluate their hypotheses and their research. There are a number of ways in which evolutionary psychologists evaluate their work. 
And I'll say from the onset that they're, they're all fine, but they often get used in a liberal manner that it makes their findings questionable, in my opinion, and in a lot of other people's opinions. So um, how do they evaluate their hypotheses? One of the main things that evolutionary psychologists will use is the idea that we know what life was like on the African savanna 200,000 years ago, half a million years ago. But it's just not true that we would know what life was like. I mean, we might know what the natural surroundings were like to some extent. But to know what the social structure was like, to know what behaviors we would see if we were to observe humans back then, a lot of assumptions are made. I mean, as far as we know, it was a matriarchal society in which women had harems of 500 males. There isn't any evidence of that, but there's very little evidence of, of anything because unless you could actually take a time machine and go back in time and actually you know, videotape early humans doing what they did, then it's all guesswork. Now, there's educated guesses we can make for sure, but again, it's always speculative to some extent. And in a lot of the research that I saw, they rarely cited this as a limitation to their research, which is irresponsible. Another way in which evolutionary psychologists evaluate their theories is through twin studies. They'll often uh, look at twins who are separated at birth and adopted into different families for various reasons, and then those children grow up in presumably different environments, and then they look at the similarities and differences between those twins. So, for instance... Some of these uh, famous people will often talk about how they'll often cite one example of a famous set of twins who were separated at birth and then 40 years later rediscovered each other and found out that they had all of these that they had all these strange similarities, like they both had a mustache and they both uh, had wives with the same name and they both liked to golf and they both liked the same brand of beer or something. And, and there are examples of this and they are actually interesting and they might actually be evidence that genetics play a role in psychology and that the foundation that we're born with will influence the path that we take in life, regardless of, of our environment. But some of the criticism about twin studies involves the issue of cherry picking, meaning that they'll, they'll take twins that were separated at birth and then they'll cherry pick random coincidental information and say, look, look how similar they are. When if you really just took a full inventory of every detail of both individuals' lives, you would find that almost nothing matches up. So what data do you consider when you're looking for similarities? Is it facial hair or is it something else like their favorite candy bar? If you take any two Americans who grew up in a similar culture, they're probably going to have a lot of similarities. So, you know, there's that issue. But it's, a, to me, a valid way of evaluating evolutionary psychology hypotheses to determine whether certain things might be genetically determined, like the amount of aggression, for instance. If twins separated at birth grow up in very different environments and show similar rates of aggression or antisocial behavior, then it might be evidence that those things are partially genetically determined. It's really one of the only ways we can determine that. The, the only other way we could determine it is if we took babies at birth, uh, twins, and separated them 
and experimented on them and, and saw if they had any similarities. Take one baby and raise them really well and take another baby and purposely raise them very poorly and see if they have similarities regardless of their environment. And of course, that would be unethical and horrible. And incidentally, we do that to other animals, but, but we don't do it to humans. And some say we shouldn't do it to animals. And when you hear about some of the animal studies, it can be pretty brutal. But I digress. So another way in which evolutionary psychologists evaluate their hypotheses is by the study of other animals, particularly apes. So the assumption is, is that since we're primates, our cousins in the animal kingdom are similar to us in, in such a way that they might exhibit similar instincts and similar, similar evolved psychological mechanisms. So this method of theory or hypothesis evaluation assumes that the innate instincts of other primates might be similar to the innate instincts of humans, right? It also assumes that ape instincts are easily determined through observation, which is questionable because some ape behavior might be cultural. I mean, to the idea that humans are the only species who teach their children things is absurd. I mean, we, we have examples uh, throughout the animal kingdom, particularly in mammals, who are known to teach their offspring things about the world. For instance, a cat parent might teach their offspring how to hunt. Another way that evolutionary psychologists evaluate their hypotheses is by trying to find cross-cultural evidence to, dem to demonstrate universality and therefore innateness. So evolutionary psychologists will study people from around the globe in various different cultures to see if certain psychological mechanisms are universal, like language, for instance. It seems to be universal that humans are born with the capacity for language. Some say language is 100% learned. Some say we are born with uh, a foundational disposition to soak up language. Uh, but anyway, the, the idea is, is that you go around the globe, and in every culture, there's language. There isn't some pocket of humans who don't communicate to each other in some way. So it would seem that we might have evolved a long time ago the capacity for language and the desire to communicate. I remember hearing another universal, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, and by the way, you can correct me anytime you want, uh, the easiest way is to go to psychologyinseattle.com and go to the contact us page and, and contact me and, and let me know that I'm wrong. But anyway, another universal I, I seem to remember hearing about was that laughing is a universal trait that around the globe in every culture, when someone laughs, they are expressing joy or humor or positive social interactions in some way. We might have various different hand gestures that in one culture, it means this thing and in another culture, it means another thing. But there are certain facial expressions that appear to be universal and therefore might be innate. The evidence of, of laughing seems to be most within baby research. Very young children will laugh wholeheartedly, right? So again, evolutionary psychologists will look for universality among humans. Another way that evolutionary psychologists evaluate their hypotheses is by using mathematical and computational modeling with computers, uh, which, is, which supposedly gives researchers the opportunity to tinker with variables to determine possible adaptations in our past. So they will write a program that models the human mind, individual minds, 
and then they will have some of the minds have some psychological mechanisms while others don't, and then they will create a model of an environment and see what psychological mechanisms seem to fare well in that environment. This is in line with evolutionary psychology and, and cognitive psychology in that it believes that the human brain is basically like a computer. It's an information processing machine. And some people have a problem with that, not only politically by um, equating humans with machines, but also just philosophically and scientifically that saying the brain is like a computer is problematic in that it's not a computer. It's, it's, it's quite different than a computer. It might operate like a computer at times, but it might not. You know, it's the brain, the nervous system, the human body is a squishy, chaotic mess of a thing, while computers are quite discreet in their functions. So that's the criticism of that. Plus, it seems to me, and I'm not an expert in this area, but it seems to me that when you create a model in a computer for human evolution, the model is only as good as the programmer. And it's impossible to really recreate the world in all its complexity, right? So it's not a bad idea, but I haven't seen a lot of research using that method, but it is one of the methods. Another way that I believe evolutionary psychologists evaluate their hypotheses is by looking at present-day hunter-gatherer societies. You know, you may have seen in the news that around the globe there are tiny, tiny little pockets of people who are, who are mostly untouched by the societies of the world and still live by a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. So the assumption is, is that these people live similarly to the way that all humans lived 100,000 or 200,000 years ago. And I think right off the bat, you would be able to detect the problem here. And it's been shown to be a problem in that the assumption that contemporary hunter-gatherer groups are the same as they were 100, 200,000 years ago is, is quite an assumption. How do we know that they're the same? In fact, I think I remember reading somewhere that when they even look at contemporary hunter-gatherer tribes that exist now, they observe vast differences between those groups. So if they're all different, then how can they all be like they were 100,000 years ago? So this presents a problem too. Now, again, it, it's one way of looking at the hypotheses. It's not as though it, it lacks any validity at all. But again, in the, in the research that I have read, I've never seen yet an example of someone that responsibly discusses this as a limitation to their study. But if we're going to look at evolutionary psychology, which I think is a valid field of inquiry, we have to rely on these methods because we don't have any other methods. We, again, we can't experiment on humans. If, if we had our way, the way that we do to other animals, we might take a, a group of 100 or 1,000 humans and put them in a biodome with a bunch of cameras and then raise them in a completely different culture or just drop them in there and just see what happens and see what, what behaviors emerge. And then we could see what behaviors exist when we don't impose the various cultures that we impose upon people that are around the world. Everyone is born into a culture and is socialized thusly. So in order to really know the difference between culture and innateness, you would have to experiment on humans, and, and that's just not going to happen, thank God. So we're stuck with these rather clunky ways of evaluating theory. All right, so let's get into the research a little bit. 
So the first research study I want to get into is on anorexia, and it's by Fair, Hendricks, Abed, and Figueredo. I'm sure I'm butchering all those names. The first name is spelled F-E-H-R, if you're looking that up, and it was published in 2005 in the journal Psychology and Psychotherapy Theory, Research, and Practice. This study was extremely complex, and I'm not exactly sure I even understand it, but I'll give it a shot regardless. In their article, they talk about previous theories regarding anorexia, and it seems to be that evolutionary psychologists have a couple theories about why people exhibit eating disorders. One theory goes like this, and when I told this theory to my colleagues, they gasped because it sounds pretty awful. But So the hypothesis goes like this. They believe that all females and males compete with people of the same sex. So in Africa, 100,000 years ago, you have a tribe and you have groups of men and women. And when those men and women come to the age when they will start to mate, uh, the boys start competing with the boys and the girls start competing with the girls to get mates, right? To get mates of the opposite sex. So this is how the theory goes. Uh, already, uh, there's a problem because it doesn't include homosexuals, but, but that's a problem with a lot of evolutionary psychology literature. So the theory goes that due to that competition between girls, some girls will emerge from that competition knowing that they are not competing very well. That after they go back and forth trying to compete for mates, some of the girls realize they're not going to get anybody. And as a way of trying to lessen the likelihood that they will pass on their substandard genes, because if they can't compete, they, it's assumed that they have some kind of genetic problem and should therefore be excluded from the gene pool, excluded, excluded from the people who reproduce that a psychological mechanism within all humans will kick in for that female because she realizes that she's losing and she will start to starve herself as a way of reducing the likelihood that she will reproduce. Because when you mess with your nutrition, you will likely have problems with pregnancies and this sort of thing. So it's a pretty complex idea and, you know, seems possible. Again, how do you measure that? How do you study that? And it seems pretty fanciful, too, right? The idea that modern-day women, when they starve themselves and exhibit symptoms of anorexia, it is an unconscious attempt to reduce the likelihood that they will have children because when you starve yourself, you're less likely to give birth. Um, it, it just seems like a strange answer to the question, right? Why are people anorexic? The other theory goes that when females compete with each other for mates of the opposite sex— that it is because they are trying to make themselves more attractive. They're not, uh, it's, it's different from the other theory in that they're, they're actually starving themselves because they're trying to become more attractive to males. The idea is, is that as teenage girls become more aware of the fact that they are competing with other females, and as that competition becomes frustrated more and more, they have a psychological mechanism that kicks in that motivates them to starve themselves. And I'm using language of my own. I'm not using the language in the article. A lot of these evolutionary psychology articles aren't very straightforward. They, they tend to dance around the idea of instinct and psychological mechanisms, and, and I'm not exactly sure why. I think it's because if, if they're a little vague, it, it's a little easier to swallow than if you, they just come out and say 
uh, what they really mean, but that's just me making a guess. I have no idea. It also could be that I just don't understand the language of evolutionary psychology and it's confusing me and, and I get frustrated because of that. So what these researchers did, Fair, Hendricks, Abed, and Figueredo, what they did is they surveyed 202 undergraduate women attending the University of Arizona to try to test these hypotheses. Now, again, right away, what you have here is you're looking at 200 women in Arizona, presumably most of them from the United States and most of them between the ages of 18 and 22. So how can they demonstrate universality if they're only looking at that very small group of people from that pocket in the cultures of the world? So that's a problem, right? But anyway, so so what they did was they surveyed these 200 women by asking them a bunch of questions that tried to determine how competitive they were with other females. Then they gave them another measure that, that tried to evaluate how many eating disorder symptoms that they had. And basically, in a nutshell, they found that the more competitive the female was with other females to get mates, you know, getting men, the more likely they were to have an eating disorder. So in the article, it seems compelling because they talk about these theories and they talk about evolutionary psychology and then they, and then they have this finding that, okay, here you have this finding that the more competition that seems to be reported by the females, the more likely they're going to have an eating disorder. So maybe it's true. Maybe we have a psychological mechanism that kicks in when we are competing with people of the same sex that causes us to starve ourselves in order to compete with people of the same sex for mates of the opposite sex. But as I've said previously, I think this is potentially just a made up story. I mean, what you have here is basically a correlation between competition and eating disorders. Maybe eating disorders cause the competition. Maybe it's some other issue like anxiety or depression that causes both anorexia and competition with people of the same sex. It's really impossible to know that based on the method that they used. And they didn't discuss culture at all. It seems plausible to me that due to American culture, you have college females that are both competitive with each other and have low self-esteem regarding their body and therefore starve themselves as a result of that. Um, our culture in the United States is such that it makes females and males, but perhaps more females, feel really horrible about themselves because they're built the way that they're built. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any female in college today that didn't feel some shame about some part of their body. And, and this is a problem because why should someone feel ashamed of who they are? Now, if they spat in someone's face or if they hit someone over the head with a book then, and they did these things on purpose for no reason, then they should be ashamed of that. There's certain things that people should be ashamed of. But in my opinion and in most people's opinions, I think, Someone shouldn't be ashamed of the way that they look. So anyway, we have a culture that teaches people this, and particularly young women. And is it likely that they're going to have body issues and, and potential to develop an eating, eating disorder? Absolutely. So they never discussed that in this article, and I just find that to be really strange. And I found that this to be an issue in a lot of the evolutionary psychology articles that I read. That if, if they mention culture, they mention it very peripherally, but many of them didn't even mention it at all. So 
I can't, I just don't know how they sleep at night. I, I don't know if they just assume that we know it already, that we assume that culture is part of it, or they're just in complete denial, or they just don't know how to include culture into the conversation. I mean, if I was reading one of these articles and, and they did everything the way that they normally do it, and then, it, you know, toward the end they said, but, you know, culture could be a major factor. I mean, they would just, you know, how many words is that, like six or seven? If they just said that, I would go, oh, okay, well, good. You know, he, this, this person is taking this into account. At least they're acknowledging it. But they often don't at all, which is, you know, just strange to me. Uh, to, to exemplify this, in another study by Ingram, Campos, Hondru, Vasilou, Martinho, and Joyson in 2012, in the journal Evolutionary Psychology, they wrote, and I quote, Our results support the theory that male and female humans exhibit different patterns of interpersonal conflict, some aspects of which are relatively culturally invariant, at least within Europe, and may therefore be biologically motivated. Boys were much more likely to talk about conflicts occasioned by competitive sports or games, whereas girls talked more about conflicts that centered on whether someone else was defined as a friend and whether they were fulfilling their obligations of friendship correctly. So let me just repeat this. In this article, they they say, and I quote, Our results support the theory that male and female humans exhibit different patterns of interpersonal conflict, some aspects of which are relatively culturally invariant, at least within Europe. So basically what they're saying is, because they've done some studies within Europe that show a consistent finding that boys talk about sports, and girls talk about social relationships, that this proves it's universal, that it's culturally invariant, meaning that it does not vary across culture. So let me just repeat that. These authors claim that because they looked at a set of studies that happened within Europe only that consistently show that boys talk about sports and girls talk about friends, that this proves that we evolved a psychological mechanism that compels boys to talk about sports and compels girls to talk about friends. This is absolutely absurd. I mean, Europe only? Come on. Certainly there are various cultures within Europe, but certainly we wouldn't say Europe represents the cultures of the entire world. Is it possible that most cultures within Europe teach boys that they should not talk about squishy, mushy, emotional things and should only talk about tough guy things? Isn't it possible that girls within Europe are socialized to not talk about tough, tough people things and only to talk about friends? Is it not possible that young boys and young girls are watching their parents and their uncles and their aunts and their and the other adults and the other people that are older than them and looking for clues about how they're supposed to act based on their gender identification? Is that not possible? Of course it's possible. In fact, it's very much the reality of, of, of what we know. In fact, we know this to be true, that culture socializes people based on gender. So these authors are just flipping something on its head and claiming it to be true when, of course, anyone with half a brain knows that it's not true. And this is in the journal called Evolutionary Psychology. Now, backing up, is it possible that we evolved as humans different psychological mechanisms based on whether or not you were born a boy or a girl? Probably, but it's very difficult to determine what that is. Is it possible that boys are born with a disposition to talk about tough guy things and girls are 
uh, born with a disposition to be more socially minded. Maybe, certainly that could be true. But it's, again, we're talking about humans that were born into a culture. And in order to really know if there were true differences between boys and girls, you would have to separate them at birth uh, into a biodome again and experiment on them. You know, like one one experiment you could do is you take a hundred newborn babies and you you put them into a biodome with a bunch of adult actors and all the women act like men and all the men act like quote unquote women, stereotypical women. And you see if all the girls grow up to have all the stereotypical male things or if they go against the culture and have their genetics kick in, so to speak, and compel them to act in ways that we see women acting today. And, and, and as I say that, women acting today as if that's a thing, because when you look at the behavior of people around the world, or even in your, even in your own city, you see massive variations in what it could be coined as female behavior. And maybe the last thing I'll say about this study is that it brings up issues of oppression and of fairness in society. Basically, it's blaming the victim. We live in a society that oppresses women in in very real ways. I know some people would like to think that we're in a post-sexism world, but we, we very much do live in a world that sees women as lesser than men. They, you know, they, people won't say this out loud, but the way that they treat women will be less, will exemplify this. And it's not just men that treat women worse than men. It's, it's women too. Everyone treats women as if they are lesser than men or not. I should say everyone on average, everybody does. Let's just put it that way. So let me just change the, the demographic a little bit just to see if it, if it makes some sense. Let's say that they did a study on Native Americans. It's well known that American Indians experience the highest rate of suicide of all ethnic groups in, in the United States. So let's say that evolutionary psychology decided to take a look at this. And let, let's say that if they didn't take culture into account and history into account, they, they just did statistics and they found that when American Indians compete against themselves to get attention from white people, that they tend to get more depressed and more suicidal. A similar finding as the anorexic study would be that Native Americans evolved a psychological mechanism to kill themselves when they are competing with other Native Americans for the attention of the mainstream culture or of, of white people. Now, on the surface, that's absurd and abhorrent and a highly offensive point of view, right? It would, of course, make much more sense that the American government and culture has systematically committed basically genocide upon American Indians for the past three, four hundred years. And that results in a lot of issues among American Indians today, including including higher rates of suicide. So in the same way, when you come back to the anorexic study, we could say that basically what these authors are trying to say is that anorexia is a result of females competing with each other for male attention. Could it not be that our society oppresses women by making them feel horrible about themselves, by making them feel ashamed of their bodies, by objectifying them in terms of how they look, and that this culture causes women to not only compete amongst themselves because 
because they're just doing anything to try to eke out some self-esteem, but they're also starving themselves because they have been told over and over again that thinner is better. Isn't that a possible explanation? Of course it is. And again, it's offensive to look to blame women and their supposed evolved psychological mechanisms as a cause for this anorexic behavior. Now, is it, is it possible that we have psychological mechanisms that might lead to symptoms of anorexia? Seems possible, but it's very difficult to tease out culture, and therefore it's impossible to know which is learned and which isn't. And just off the top of my head, I've read studies that show that anorexia does not have the same prevalence rate around the world. All right. Well, um, I think I'll wrap it up there and maybe I'll do another episode on other research in evolutionary psychology. Okay. So um, again, uh, caveat, I am not a biologist or an evolutionary psychologist. I, I know some things about some things, and this is one of those things that I don't know much about, but, but I've read a lot about it and I thought I would share my thoughts with you. So if you know a lot about it and you can set me straight or you have any comments, please contact me at contact at psychology in Seattle.com. Our email again is contact at psychology in Seattle.com, or you can go to psychology in Seattle.com and go to our contact us page, or you can go to a lot of the various pages on our website and look at stuff and you can go to the support us page if you're super cool and follow some of the directions to support the podcast you know we, we do it because of you and without your support we'll just uh, dwindle and die uh, literally you know uh, every time there's a comment it gives us actually lifeblood that keeps us alive all right well that does it for the psychology portion of the episode now as in previous episodes, I thought I might share some stuff at the end of the episode about my band's music. Uh, my band is called Bread Knife Incident, and if you're not interested, you can obviously stop right now. But if you're interested, I invite you to listen, and if you're interested in the music, you can go to iTunes and buy some of our music, and, that, and the proceeds of which go to the podcast, for the most part. This song is called Tiny Once, and let's just play a clip from it. What can I say about this song? Let's see. Basically, this song is about the evils of men and not the evils of women. At the time I wrote this song, I was disheartened by a lot of the things that I was seeing around me, things that people were doing, and they were all men. And I extended it out to ills of society that we often can blame on men and not women. Now, some people will say, well, that's just because women aren't in power, and I might agree with that. But nonetheless, the vast majority of the evil leaders and those people who abuse their power are men. And it was uh, really getting on my nerves. And as I was writing the first verse, about halfway th through the first verse, I wrote this line, and then it became the chorus, which is, men have tiny wants that rapidly eclipse moral sun. It's sort of a clunky phrase to some extent, but basically, you know, I'm saying that when when someone has a tiny want, something that they could do with or do without, it doesn't matter that much, it rapidly eclipses their morality and makes them selfish, regardless of how much it will harm someone else. 
And this was the sort of behavior I was seeing around me at the time. So the lyrics go, This song's about the men, and it's not about the women. Men have tiny wants that rapidly eclipse moral sun. Destroyers of nations and cheaters of their friends. Narcissistic, self-centered, arrogant, hurtful nature of man. Betrayers of the bond and fakers of their love. Liars of the truth and bombers from above. I'm sort of tying in these war atrocities with uh, friend betrayal. Um, so again, betrayers of the bond, so betrayers of friendship bonds, and fakers of their love, liars of the truth, and bombers from above, committers of genocide, and warmers of the earth, champions of all the rich, and moochers of the homeless and the poor, abandoners of children, and murderers of wives, rapists of our sisters, and gamblers of our lives, bigots of the oppressed, and killers of the rest, pimps of our mothers and lechers of our daughters. So uh, pretty graphic there. Again, uh, abandoners of children. You know, the statistics will tell us time and again that of the people who tend to abandon their children, men are much more likely. And murderers of our wives. Again, if there's going to be spousal abuse and murder, it's much more often the man. Rapists of our sisters and gamblers of our lives, bigots of the oppressed, and killers of the rest, pimps of our mothers, and lechers of our daughters. You know, a lot of anger here. So let's just go to another clip of that. I guess this song is kind of a take back the night sort of thing. It's a pointing of the finger back at those who point fingers. It's a, an attack at, on the attackers. It's anger toward the aggressor. And then I ad-libbed a line at the end of the song that it's hard to tell what I'm saying, but I said, no one loves you, I can tell. Oh, I can tell. No one loves you, I can tell. Oh, I can tell. This is um, just an angry statement toward those people who abuse people. Let's listen to that bit. So what can I say about this song musically? Well, it came together rather quickly. I remember rehearsing with the band in my garage. Uh, yes, we were literally a garage band. And I started playing and it, it just clicked. One of the greatest things about being in a band or I guess probably being a part of any group art project is when things are clicking, it just feels, I don't know how to describe it, but it's this chaotic system that you don't know how it came to be the way that it is in that particular moment, but it, it just feels wonderful. I, as I've said before in previous podcasts, Carlos and Brant, the drummer and the bassist, they write their parts and their parts are brilliant. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. 
And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs>